Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, what is the strangest thing that you never leave the house without? Post-it notes. What? Erin, <laughs> if I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a picture when we're done recording. My the dashboard of my car looks like a beautiful mind. It's covered in post-it notes with notes I write myself instead of uh, texting and driving. Cool. I think that's probably a good way to make it so that people don't break into your car because they're like, I don't want to get involved with this person. Yeah, who's this madman? <laughs> I don't want to get involved at all. I'll break into the car that looks clean like a normal person has it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Alyssa, this is a fun, loosey-goosey episode this week. Yeah, it feels good. Feels a lot good. Of, a lot Love, of me and you. A lot, a lot of getting into it. A lot of getting into it, a lot of me and you. One thing that I'm a little, um, we don't we don't get into how many times Commander the dog has bitten Secret Service agents. At this point, I think we should just assume that it's the Secret Service agent's fault. Yeah. Is that controversial? I don't know. I mean, don't so antagonize we, the dog. <laughs> don't, I mean, you're doing something, like, I feel <laughs> like they're doing something wrong. There are no bad dogs. Feels messy. Feels, feels messy. I think I need to hear Commander's side before I make a judgment. <laughs> um, but this week, we've got we've got a fun show. We get into news about labor action. We yes. get into news about uh, the Arkansas governor just being like a, a tacky asshole. Um, what else do we get to talk about? We get week, we talk about uh, some things happening down in Alabama. SCOTUS like doing its job. Feels good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of fun interviews with somebody on the ground in Virginia. We've mm-hmm. also got an interview with Crooked's very own Kendra James. Fun. Just vibes. It's nothing yeah, but just, vibes this week. Just vibes. And then a Sandy Petty. Um, fun episode. Everyone stick around. We'll be right back with the news. All right. Hysteria, the podcast for people who read maps for fun. 
I do, do love maps? a map. I do. I do love a map. I love want, a map. I actually want... know a cartographer. What? How? How do you I know? I do. A... My I friend know. Violetta's husband. He's a cartographer. What? And a pilot. And a pilot. That's, yeah. he's a spy. That's not real. That's not a real job. <laughs> Might be true. I'm going to confront him about he this. He is in intelligence. Uh, that is not a real job. Uh, along with marine biologist, also not a real job. <laughs> uh I actually know somebody, one of my um, one of my husband's cousins is going to college for like marine biology. And I'm like, oh, well, they do exist. Huh. Interesting. It's like that's not just what you graduate high school intending to do and then don't. <laughs> is, that, is that what you wanted to do? Did you go through your marine No, no. I just knew – I knew a lot of a lot of kids who went to UVM who were going to be marine biologists who like ended up working at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. That's, that's another – well, another way to get into the depths is uh, do that. I want to talk about a news story. I, I mean, like, we're going to get into some serious stuff, but we like to start with something stupid because there's so much stupid stuff out there. Um, let's take a little trip to Arkansas, shall we? Arkansas, oh. beautiful state with bad politics. Um, I was there last December, and I saw two dead dogs on the side of the road, which— Oh, uh, God. Yeah, not in the same place. There was just, like, two dogs that had been independently hit by cars. Nobody oh, had done it's anything like that. About. It's like that Indigo Girl song, Chicken Man. Dead dog on a highway. Yeah, I mean, Anyway, it's terrible and gives me a nightmare, and it's why I can't really listen to that song. I feel like you don't want to be in a place where people are very unkind to dogs— but you don't also you don't want to be in a place where people are like too nice to dogs compared to how nice they are to people. You know? Agree. Agree. You need it needs the right balance. Okay, so Arkansas. Uh Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who we all can remember for um weirdly having half of the media rush to her defense when Michelle Wolf made fun of her bad makeup. Oh, uh, for God's whatever. sake. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is the governor there. Um she's <laughs> a wildly popular governor. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't so get it. Difficult to I don't swallow. get it, but she has been um, – do you remember, like, all of those Trump officials who, when they got access to, like, you know, the privileges of, of being in the executive branch or being close to power, they all acted like Beverly Hillbillies? 100%. Like, do you remember uh, – I think it was the former HHS Secretary Price who made an assistant drive around to get, like, lotion from the Ritz-Carlton or something? Like, it was – Oh, yes. They all – it was bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Using government things for the wrong things. For, like, ridiculous things. Like, for, for like – I don't know. Beverly Hillbilly behavior. You know what I mean? Like McMansion Hillbilly lifted yeah. $70,000 truck. Like a lot of money and no class sort of mm -hmm. behavior, right? Sarah Huckabee Sanders truly uh, sort of embodies that. Uh, there is a little bit of a, a firestorm in Arkansas right now because she um, bought a $19,000 podium. Um, like what? What? Yeah, a podium, like a thing to stand behind. Um, yeah, a thing to stand. It's, it's not even nice looking. It's um, stupid looking. It is stupid looking. And uh, the, Ar the Arkansas Democrat Gazette has been all over this story. You can read about <laughs> it on ArkansasOnline.com. Uh, and that's Arkansas with an S at the end because it's ridiculously spelled Anyway, um, the Republican Party of Arkansas uh, reimbursed nineteen thousand dollars 
uh, $19,029.25 to the state for the cost of the governor's office purchasing a podium with a check dated last Thursday. Now, the reason that this is kind of a story is because the podium was purchased in June, and it wasn't until people started asking questions like, hey, what's going on with this like fancy-ass podium that uh, the inaugural fund reimbursed the state? Um, what do you... How, how, what do you make of this, Alyssa? $19,000 podium. Aaron, when you texted this to me this morning, what did I say? I said, this is a storyline in Veep, and it actually is. Except, you know what? Selena Myers' uh, crate that she stood on was only $1,200, not $19,000. I mean, let me tell you something. Someone is investing in her future. Like, Sarah Huckabee Sanders thinks that she's going to be governor for a good long time, and she's just like, I want it perfect. I want the podium that I want. But it really is like, you would think if someone was going to drop that kind of money on a podium, I don't know, it would be like bulletproof or something. But this is like a a real skinny podium. It's like, it offers no protection. I see nowhere to put a cup of water underneath it if you want to. It seems like not good value for anyone who's donating to her fund's uh, dollar. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's a banana, Michael. What's it cost? $10? Like, it's that sort of vibe. So podium right. should not be $19,000. So the podium, according to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, uh, is uh, was pur- purchased on June 14th, right before Sanders left for a trip to Europe, a trade mission. I didn't know that Arkansas was doing a lot of direct yes. trade. Huh. With Europe, um, and uh, yeah, so they're they're sort of um, they're sort of like falling all over themselves to make excuses for this expensive podium. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, meanwhile, has been doing some kind of serious stuff when it comes to trying to obscure who she's meeting with and where she's going. Um, she's mm-hmm. trying to amend her state's FOIA laws to make it so yep. that it is hard for people to know where she's going, what her agenda is. Uh, it's it's pre- it's pretty slimy. It's pretty sleazy. And well, and I- the reason it's bullshit is they're trying to subvert FOIA laws, which is bullshit. And she is doing it in the guise. And this is something, Aaron, for all my years in government that I really can't fucking I can't abide. She says it's for her protection. It's for her protection. It's protecting her family. People shouldn't know where she is. What it is trying to do is obfuscate how she's traveling. Is she on a private plane? Is she flying commercial? What is she doing? And it's, uh, if I were in Arkansas, I'd be pretty fucking pissed. Yeah, I would be too. Okay, on to the news news. Um, So, you know, there's been a lot of labor action happening. The WGA just reached a tentative agreement uh, with the movie producers, and the strike is now officially over, uh, I guess, until, you know, unless the the guild rejects it. But for now, writers can return to work. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's really good news. Um, The UAW continues to be on strike, and it seems like they're kind of winning the publicity war of that. Uh, One thing I kind of wanted to get into, though, is something that I've seen, I've noticed, I've seen people point it out, and that's the way that the mainstream media covers labor action um, Mm -hmm. from the perspective of try like trying to frame labor action how in a way that like how does this affect you the consumer um and right. that's the only time that business reporting for the most part is framed like you know it's the only time that it's it's framed like that you know so UAW goes on strike i saw some news coverage that was like how is this going to affect the cost of a car for you oh is oh, this going to yeah. make cars more expensive 
But, you know, when the executive compensation is announced or quarterly earnings for, you know, uh, for Ford or whatever are happening, you don't see like, oh, the, you know, CEO of Ford is making a gajillion, bedillion dollars this year. How is that going to affect the price of a car? Or shareholders are getting this dividend. How is this going to make you pay more for a car? No, it's always these people who are trying to fight for an equal pay increase to the person at the top of the company, the person whose labor makes the thing that the company sells. Uh, it's always like trying to, I don't know, it's it's trying to pit the people who are not at the top against each other. And I am not in favor of it. I think it's bad. No. Aaron, I have had huge issues over the past couple of weeks with how the media has covered all the strikes and the labor action. It's like, I feel... Um, couple things. One, the UAW strike. Part of what I have been so totally annoyed by, one, in almost every report that you watch on television, they frame the strikers as like aggressors, right? That this is like, this is a rowdy bunch of people and they are, you know, petulant. There's always this like, like, toddlers acting out need to be controlled sort of like vibe to all of the reporting. And I felt like if you watched, especially around the UAW, very few mainstream media reporting included the fact that these very workers who were setting out to strike were doing so because during the financial crisis in 2008, they took cuts to keep the companies afloat so that because everybody was falling apart, you know, it, someone in the Obama administration uh, during this time had wanted to put on a bumper sticker, GM is alive and bin Laden is dead. Like those were our accomplishments, right? And the UAW helped GM stay alive. And part of what they were doing now was just wanting to be made whole from the sacrifices that they made. And that was really underreported um, across like the entire spectrum of media. And, and with the WGA, when you saw the reports, if like my husband, my husband likes to be a, a hysteria media monitor. He'll send me a lot of articles in the morning when he wakes up and I'll be like, and if they, if they were business, if it was CNN business, CNBC, any of those, I'd be like, ah, oh, it's an AMPTP leak. Like that's, uh, mm -hmm. can't take that seriously because it was always, if you read it, it was always very much from the perspective of they're negotiating, and if there's not a deal by Sunday, then there's not going to be one till after Christmas. And it's like, okay, no one from the WGA, like, that's crazy. Nobody did that. And so it makes it feel like a reporting of leaks and not a reporting of a story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think at the beginning of the WGA strike, I saw some reporting that was like, uh, what does this mean for your favorite shows? What does it mean right. for your favorite shows? And it's like, Okay, like I think it was nipped in the bud pretty quickly by a successful social mm -hmm. media push from writers whose job, you know, they're literally very to good write. at writing. <laughs> they're very good at like getting messages across, right? So I, the the social media kind of war over messaging was kind of what that was corrected pretty quickly. It was like this is how much the CEO makes. This is right. how much the writers make. You know, it was was really like the the war of messaging was lost very very quickly totally. and, and resoundingly. I think with the UAW, it's been a little bit more, it's been a little bit less of a quick smackdown of that messaging. Mm -hmm. Like, actually, you know, the cost of a car is not something that can be entirely attributed to how much the workers on the lowest rungs right. of the pay scale are being paid. I am, I, I, I'm just, I'm really tired of pretending like rich people exist in this world that doesn't affect us at all. Like, it's when in reality, they're like sucking the blood 
out of everything below them. It's like trickle up economics. Everything mm-hmm. is being sucked up to them. I mean, it's it, and it's embarrassing to me to watch mainstream media cover it that way. I, I find it to be just like. We should have learned, like, don't you know better? You should know better. And have you have you noticed how few, now we have talked to Kim Kelly, who is a reporter who covers labor politics. We've talked to her a couple times on the show. But have you noticed how few times on television there's ever, like, a labor reporter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Business like, reporting <laughs> is from the perspective of, like, right. the business. And it's, it's, like, not, there's something kind of dismayingly non-adversarial about it. You know, like very yeah. rarely are they actually concerned with like the exploitative structure of the thing that they're reporting on. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess that's how people kind of get away with these egregious violations of ethics and morals and decency over and over again. Um, speaking of egregious violations of ethics and morals and decency, uh, J.P. Morgan is in some trouble uh for- Epsteinian trouble, Epsteinian trouble. Uh, J.P. Morgan is going to pay $75 million over claims it enabled Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking. What? Yikes. You know those news stories? I mean, stories? good. I mean, those. This the Epstein story is one of those news stories that made me feel crazy. Like, oh my God. Like, how is this still happening? There's like- But there it is, is. There is. I mean, there is like actually, or there was when he was alive- a network of wealthy and powerful people that essentially existed to for the purposes of sex trafficking young girls. Like, holy shit. That's holy that makes shit. me feel crazy. Um, and JP Morgan was complicit. This is from NPR. This is not from Coast to Coast AM. This is from NPR. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase um, agreed on Tuesday to pay $75 million to the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, because 55 uh, – J.P. Morgan says $55 million of the settlement will go toward local charities that provide assistance to victims of domestic abuse and trafficking and other crimes. Um, of that amount, $10 million will be used to create a fund to provide mental health services for Epstein survivors. It's just crazy. That's the Virgin Islands, by the way, is where Epstein had an estate, um, and the country sued J.P. Morgan last year, um, alleging that financial services giant enabled Epstein's recruiters to pay victims and was indispensable, quote, indispensable to the operation and concealment of Epstein's trafficking enterprise. Ah, yikes! I, I don't like it. Uh, I don't like it at all. Uh, J.P. Morgan has already agreed to pay $290 million in June in a class action lawsuit that involved victims of Epstein's trafficking crimes. Oh, boy. Oh, I mean, good, good, good. We're glad that people are, you know, getting help that they more than deserve. But my God. J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Girl, I mean, what you doing? I, know. I mean, like I said, this story makes me feel insane. Um, and then, you know, finally, the the end of the, the final kicker of the story, Epstein died by suicide in a federal jail in 2019. Man, that just, I feel like it was a real murder on the Orient Express type situation. Yeah, uh, definitely. So many people preferred him to no longer be alive after he was apprehended. Uh, One more thing before we finish talking about kind of the upside down way that uh, we Mm. talk about big entities that are complicit in causing harm. Um, President Biden was on the picket line. That is cool. 
Like I was into it. Yeah, that's super cool. And I also wanted to say one more thing is that the president of UAW, I get the impression that a lot of people are like low-key horny for him. I mean, honestly, aren't you a little bit? (laughs) A little, yes. A little, but it's like, it's just like very. And Aaron, you know, coming from me. That means something. I, he's just like a normal looking, like <laughs> middle aged dude. He, there's nothing handsome really about him. But yeah, I think everyone's no, a little horny but for him. Somehow, Mark Wahlberg will play him in a movie someday. <laughs> no, not Mark. Mark Ruffalo, the superior. Okay, Mark, Mark Ruffalo. He can I know, do but, it. You know, he can do it. He's a great actor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I sound like I'm being sarcastic. Mark Ruffalo. No, I know legit, you're not being sarcastic. Legit a good actor. Wahlberg, eh, middling. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right, Alyssa, what else do we have today? You know what? We, we, we were enjoying some good ACLU vibes. We were enjoying some good news, uh, the ACLU way. In case anybody missed it, uh, earlier this week, the Supreme Court refused Aaron, SCOTUS refused to consider changing their June ruling about Alabama's congressional district maps. Okay, Hmm. so now Alabama will probably end up with a second black majority district. Uh, In case people were not tracking it, Alabama GOP lawmakers again approved a congressional map with only one majority black district flouting the Supreme Court's decision that they provide more political representation for the state's black residents, which are about 27% of the state. So the GOP is like, okay, this is what we're doing. And the Supreme Court smacked them on the nose and said, absolutely not. You are not listening. You will not disrespect our authority. And <laughs> that is uh, that is great news because now uh, Alabama currently has six Republicans and one Democratic member of Congress, and they may pick up another Democrat. That's what? good. That's good. That's we good. Need, we need all the Democrats we can get. I think uh, what's super funny about this is that the Supreme Court really hates the Voting Rights Act, really hates it. Yeah. And so the fact yeah. that they were like, Alabama, no. Means God that, damn like, it. The Alabama was so just like blatantly like, I don't know, we just shouldn't have to do it. Like just completely just- lazy in art- making their case. They didn't even make an effort to try to pretend no. that what they were doing was okay. No. They just sort of like, I mean, I remember a couple years ago, year ago, I don't know, what is time? But I remember saying that like, you know, some conservative lawyers representing conservative like activist interests could go before the Supreme Court and just spend their entire time in front of the court blowing raspberries, making fart sounds, <laughs> and still yeah. win. You know, like they barely, they don't yep. even have to do anything. But I think we have found the limit of like the raspberry blowing that the Supreme Court will accept. Yeah. And that is what They're like, the, they go, the don't state give me. of Alabama. <laughs> don't give me. It's like, uh, I appreciate that I'm going to be super uh, Gen X right now, but it's like back in the day when mom would be like, oh, you want to cry? I'll give you something to cry about. The Supreme Court's like, don't make me tell you twice. And you just did, and don't do it again. Yeah. I mean, there would be something, look, narratively interesting, constitutionally, (laughs) like, absolutely catastrophic, but narratively interesting if you're just, like, watching life unfold as though you're watching a movie and just kind of dissociating. Something interesting would be if the power of the Supreme Court, this activist conservative Supreme Court, was eroded by the fact that a 
completely right wing. Yeah. Cuckoo banana state refused to follow. Just went too orders. far. Well, like if yes. just imagine if Alabama's like, no. And they just kept doing it. It's like the Supreme Court has no enforcement arm. The Supreme Court has no army. They have no police. They just like Could rely you imagine? on everyone just being like, okay, yep, fair enough. Fair enough. The court said to do it. So we're going to do it. But like imagine if Alabama just is like, no. <laughs> and like that's the constitutional crisis that completely undermines the power of the court. And from there, other states can just be like, you know what? We don't fucking care. We're going to just start doing like in the state of Wisconsin this week, uh, Dane and Milwaukee counties just resumed providing abortion services. I think there's like one clinic in each county um, because uh, legal interpretation of the pre-Civil War ban on abortion Mm -hmm. has been a judge said, oh, no, right. that, that applies to feticide. That does not actually apply to abortion. Um, and so Dane and Milwaukee counties were like, cool, we're going to start doing abortions again. Um, and a bunch of like anti-abortion activists are like, we should put the doctors in jail now. And people in the counties are like, no, 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 like, no, you're not. Stop yourself. Yeah. Interesting chaos. But congratulations to the people of Alabama for uh, for for actually kind of getting a little bit closer to approaching a, a yeah. democracy. Um, and congratulations to America for probably getting another Democrat in the House of Representatives. Um, one more thing today. Uh, there was a study that came out this week confirming a hunch of mine and yours, <laughs> Alyssa. It turns out that women pay billions with a B, b- 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 billions more out of pocket for health care than men do. So that's according to a new report from Deloitte that said women pay $15.4 billion more than men do out of pocket for health care without even considering maternity costs. So like, yeah, like at first I saw this and I was like, oh yeah. Subtract all maternity costs, still paying billions more. Yes, exactly. And that's that's partly because women actually go to the doctor more often than men do. Uh, men literally won't go to the doctor until they're in like stage f- stage four of a terminal illness. Um, but it also seems that women's issues are just like not covered by insurance or we get treated so badly at so many doctor's offices that we have to travel around like a small town carnival looking yes. for a doctor that will treat them seriously, mm-hmm. singing their song of their symptoms like, hey, I've got some pain in my lower back. And the doctor's like, you're depressed. Here's some birth control and antidepressants. And it's like, nope, I've got fibroids, you know, that sort of a thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. they, they pay more to get second and third opinions and people who have nothing to do with their care at their insurance companies enjoy calling and being like, hey hey, no, we're not going to cover this thing that your doctor said you needed. It just, it fucking sucks. It sucks. Yeah. Single payer And you know what? Single payer Ladies, women have started really understanding too how menopause affects their bodies and are like seeking out treatment. And a lot of it's considered experimental. What? So Mm -hmm. you pay out Mm -hmm. of pocket. It's not fair, (laughs) Erin. Yeah, it's it's really what's something that's very fucked up I have read is that hormone replacement therapy is something that's like very effective and and helpful for a lot of women, but a lot of doctors won't prescribe it because of it mm-hmm. anyway. It's like a whole thing. Um yeah, it sucks. It sucks and it shouldn't be like this, but it is and I feel like until people get really 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 mad, nothing is going to change. Yeah, no, totally agree. Fuck All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, here's why you should be worried about Virginia, and here's what you can do about it.
And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast for people who may or may not live in Virginia, but still put Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin near the top of their weasel list. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a weasel. We're making weasel come back. Alyssa and I were talking before we started recording. Weasel. Weasel we're making weasel of, happen. Weasel I love it. Is the insult of 2023. That voice it. you're hearing is our guest today. We're super excited to bring her on. So we've been talking about this year's November elections a lot on the pod lately because non-presidential elections have major stakes and democracy is kind of like a garden. If you don't pay attention to it, you're probably not going to like what grows in it. So today, our guest is going to walk us through the upcoming Virginia election and its impact on everything from abortion to 2024, both in the Commonwealth and across the country. She's the co-executive director and co-founder of the New Virginia Majority, where she fights for multiracial communities and widespread civic engagement. Tram Nguyen, welcome to Hysteria. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So this is a really contentious election. State legislature could turn into, you know, one full of Yunkins if we're not careful. So how are you at New Virginia Majority preparing for November for an election where all 140 seats in the General Assembly are up for grabs? And how's the work going right now? So we've been preparing for this for long before even this year started because we knew what was on the horizon. As soon as Governor Yunkin won in 2021, we were like, oh, crap. (laughs) Like we got to make sure that we don't um, we don't give him a MAGA Republican trifecta because the danger in all of that is what you see happening in Florida and all of these other states. So we've been preparing for this for a while. We've been on the doors since April, talking to voters about what's at stake in these elections, encouraging them to make a plan to vote. We've knocked on um, hundreds of thousands of doors already this year. We're talking to voters, and we're gonna. I mean, our plan is to win, right? We're we're in a number of targeted toss-up seats in the House and the Senate, and the plan is to take the Democratic majority. So, Tram, the results of this election will decide how Democrat or Republican the state's legislature will be. In other words, the election will decide the fate of abortion in Virginia. How is the pro-abortion fight going in Virginia right now? Abortion is definitely on the ballot. Um, Last Our last legislative session earlier this year, we were one vote away from an abortion ban passing in our state legislature, right? One vote away. And that's that's how close we are, right? Um, So the pro-abortion fight is going really well. Voters are very energized around it. Um, You know, we saw in Kansas and some of these other states that when we take the issue to the voters, voters are overwhelmingly on the side of making sure that people have access to reproductive health care. Uh, there was a primary, a Democratic primary in June, where when I, when I said we had, we were one vote away from an abortion ban, it was because Democratic Senator Joe Morrissey um, is not supportive of abortion. And so he was primaried in June. And we endorsed LaSharice Aird, his opponent back then with Planned Parenthood and a number of, of organizations, and she won. So we feel like that that is a good indicator, right, that abortion's really important to Virginia voters. The challenge we have in Virginia is that we can't take the issue directly to the voters. We are not a direct democracy state. We don't have ballot initiatives. And so abortion has to go through our legislature. And I think that's, you know, if we were to have it on the ballot for all voters, I think, of course, Virginians are going to, you know, knock it down, right? But since it has to go through the legislature and each legislative district is either really Republican or really Democrat, and then there's some toss-ups, it's a little bit more of a challenge. And that's why this November's election 
is so critical because all of like abortion, voting rights, everything hangs in the balance. So what local voices should we be paying attention to in addition to yours? Like, are there any uh, Senate or House seat races that you find particularly interesting uh, or motivating? And can you explain the so-called sore loser rule and why it's such a hot topic right now? Oh, gosh, the sore loser rule. (laughs) It is a hot topic. And I didn't realize it would be such a hot topic. The sore loser rule in Virginia is so if you're involved in a primary, Republican or Democratic primary, a party primary, if you lose, you can't then turn around and, you know, run on the same ballot as an independent, right? It's you just make that pledge. You don't get to run again. And there are a couple of candidates who lost their primary in June um, that are trying to, you know, they have a, a a set of voters and supporters that are trying to get them to be on the ballot. One House Democratic candidate is suing the state because of the sore loser rule. Um, so it's it's you know it's 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 front and center, um, but it does have an impact because there is one particular Senate race um, that is one of the toss-up races, one of the four critical toss-up races, and. Um, the sore loser Republican candidate is in, uh, engaging in a write-in campaign. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens because it's already a three-way race between a Republican, a Democrat, and an independent. And now you've had this dynamic where the Republican loser is doing a write-in campaign. And so I think that bodes well for uh, for Joel Griffin, who is a Democratic candidate in that district. Hmm. Um, that sounds super interesting. And I also love sore loser rule. It's, it's like hard yeah. back to like playground because it's like, oh, yeah, we all know what a sore loser is. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the Loudoun County School Board election and its parents, parents rights activists? I'm using like air quotes here very yeah. heavily. How do you feel about them? The school board races, not only in Loudoun, but across the state are big battlegrounds right now. I think that these activists are a vocal minority. They're, you know, a very loud vocal minority, but is not the will and the the sent they don't share the same sentiments as the majority of parents in in these places. Um but you know the Republicans are using this whole parental rights framework as their rallying cry to get their base to turn out. And um you know but when we're on the doors and we're talking to to voters um it's very clear that a lot of these vote, like most of the voters we talk to don't buy into that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when they think about what's really important for school boards and what's really important with our public education, it's making sure that our teachers have resources and to, and the tools they need to teach our children. Right. They want to make sure that, um, you know, schools are adequately funded. The support staff is there. They just want their kids to have a quality education. And all this other crap is just crap. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, what I found really interesting about like a lot of this school board activism, book banning, whatever, if I feel like a lot of the people that are the most vocal about it don't even have kids in the actual schools. Mm. Like they're just outside agitators. Have you noticed that? In, so funny. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Have you noticed that in Virginia that there's like outsiders who really don't have any business weighing in? I think there's an element of that for sure. I think that's why it's like they're the vocal minority. There's just like this feel like sometimes it's like the same set of parents, parents in quotes, um, adults who are going to school board meetings and you see some of the same faces. And like, well, how are you in Loudoun County this week and then somewhere else in another week? Right. And so it's yeah, I do think that there is this, you know, there's there's this facade, right, that this is an issue of 
real parents with schools and these, you know, in these school systems. And that's really not what public education parents really are caring about. Yeah, you know what? That would actually be really interesting fodder for a journalist in uh, Virginia <laughs> who wanted to cover what who the agitators actually are because they're showing up at different school board meetings. That I think that's germane. Um, that it, it's super fascinating to me. I have a I have a kid, and watching people who are like not parents deciding what kids should read just like completely blows my mind. It's like, wh- why are you mind your own business? What else? Do something else. Anyway, that could be a whole other, it could be a whole can <laughs> no, of worms. It's a whole other thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Governor Yunkin. Okay. You guys, I have to tell you something. When I was growing up, I had a Halloween costume and since it's spooky season, I've said Yunkin so many times in the past 24 hours. My mom was not good at Halloween costumes and she got me this inflatable pumpkin that went on my head and it was called a Wumpkin Pumpkin. And when I hear (laughs) Yunkin, that's all I see now is the Wumpkin Pumpkin and me dripping sweat from having a plastic inflatable on my head smeared with green paint to look like a stem. Oh, the 80s were wild. They were wild. (laughs) What were we doing? I remember that, those masks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. this is like I'll find a picture and post it, but like every time I say Yunkin, I just hear Wunkin Punkin. Um, but back to Governor Yunkin Wunkin Punkin. Uh he sucks. <laughs> and so uh Trent, do you think a Democratic majority in the General Assembly is going to be enough to keep his power largely at bay? I mean, this is a governor who thinks that he has a lot of executive powers, right? When, for example, when Virginia joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, one of our environmental priorities, um, he took it upon himself to remove Virginia from it. Now he's facing some lawsuits because he doesn't have the power to do that, right? It's like, what are you doing? On rights restoration for folks that were you know, convicted of felonies, he's made it so much harder for people to get their rights restored. And in fact, we recently just discovered that he has been taking people who've had their rights restored by Governor Northam in his last year of office. Um, now we're hearing that when they if they make a t- there's a technical violation on their parole, right, they forget to call in or something. Governor Yunkin's administration is taking their right to vote away. And it's like, that is, that's illegal. You can't do that. And so, yes, this is a governor who this administration, right, thinks that they have, they have a lot of power that they don't. And we need to keep, we need to keep them in check. Mm -hmm. That sounds exhausting. (laughs) Um, I'm sure, I'm sure like you, our listeners are feeling stressed about what could happen in Virginia in November. Do you have any suggestions for how we can put this pre-election nervousness into action? Well, that's a tough question for me because I live in a state of perpetual anxiety. I don't sleep at night. It's just like, oh, my gosh. And I've I've said to folks, if I'm not worrying, then you should be worried because, like, how can you not worry with everything that's at stake? But I do believe that there is a path to victory and it's just an all hands on deck moment. Right. Whether you're a Virginian or a non-Virginian, find ways that you can, you know, be a part of what's happening here, because, frankly, what happens here is going to matter for 2024. Right. If they are successful on, you know, their abortion message, for example, which is really gross because, you know, they're saying out now they're using this whole we don't support an outright ban. We support 15 week bans with like and it's like a ban is a ban. Right. Um, So but it's working. Right. And so I feel like if it works here and they win, then they're going to take that across the country and mislead a lot of 
Americans that, okay, the Republican Party does not believe in abortion bans when, in fact, they do, and they will do everything they can to restrict access to it. All right. Well, pay attention and stay nervous. That is uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's our takeaway for uh, Virginia. Um, Trem, where can people follow the work that you're doing? So our website, um, www.newvirginiamajority.org, that is all spelled out. It's long. I'm sorry. But that's, uh, <laughs> that's there's a lot of information there in terms of some of the key races we're watching and that we're engaging in, how you can sign up, how you can volunteer. We have phone banks that people from all over the country join. Um, so even if you don't live here, you can you know participate. Um, so all of that information is on our website. Awesome. Tram Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us this week and keeping us up to speed about what's going on and what's at stake in Virginia this fall. Awesome. Thanks for helping us spread the word. All right, Alyssa, that was such a fun interview. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, it'll be just you solo. Just you solo. Yeah. Just a little interview. Little interview. Just a a little interview with one of our faves. Little back to school magic for back to school. Little back to school magic. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have to. I refuse to be uncomfortable I ref- if I want to be productive. I refuse <laughs> to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle, which is like yeah. Viore is perfect for it because they the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. They're very, like, on a a couch nap. You know, you have, like, a, oh yeah. you've got, like, maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a, like, small break. I'm very tired. I'm going to just, like, lay down for 20 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect for couch napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put yeah, a, a totally. blazer and like— Denim shirt. Denim, denim shirt, oh, blazer, yeah. leggings. So easy. 100%. And, of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit, falling just above the knee, while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. That's perfect. He is, like, I think my my dad is one of those people that just, like, beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're— they look like a security blanket that a 30-year-old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like, um, Our dads are the same. Yeah, yeah. But um, my dad has had his for like a couple years now and I think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when I met up with um, family on a, on a short weekend trip and they still looked great. It was like, Dad, 
Your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering Hysteria listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. As fall begins and school gets back into session, we can't help but think about our own experiences in the education system. The good, the bad, the dorky. In particular, today's guest is the author of Admissions, a memoir of surviving boarding school, a book all about her experience as one of the only black kids at a predominantly white, very wealthy East Coast high school. She's a friend of hysteria. You've heard her on NPR. Her writing has appeared in Elle, Marie Claire, Harper's Women's Health, and she's the executive producer for culture shows here at Crooked. It's Kendra James. Hello. Welcome, Kendra. That intro always makes me think... Oh, remember when I used to write? Because <laughs> um, I don't yeah. do that anymore. <laughs> it's great. I have over the years, my bio has gone from a page to a paragraph. Right. And it and it includes how I just want to have lunch with Stevie Nicks. That's, <laughs> it, as you get older, you can take liberties with your bio. Okay. Kendra, I love memoirs. But I always end up at war with myself when I want to interview someone whose memoir I loved because I don't want to give too much away. So let me start by saying what I should probably finish by saying. If you're going to boarding school, if you're going to college, if you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt of someone who will ever attend a school of any type, you should read admissions. Everybody should read admissions. Okay. That is my endorsement. (laughs) Everyone knows I can be a real dick. So an endorsement for me actually does mean something. (laughs) Kendra, you had been accepted to Taft, a prestigious boarding school in Connecticut. You were a legacy. Your dad went to Taft in the 70s. You ended up being the first Black American legacy to graduate Taft since 1891. We hear so much about legacy admissions today. How would you describe your first days on campus? Um, my first day, it's So my first days on campus, I got there early because I entered this school as a sophomore, 
which we call a mid. Um, and I did my first year, my freshman year, at my public school in New Jersey, Columbia High School, which is a great school. Like, SZA went to that school. Lauren Hill went to that school. <laughs> Ellen Powell went to that school. It's a good school. Um, I would have done, like, probably fine there. Uh, but it was not, like, what I needed sort of, like, intellectually. And, like, I needed more attention because that's who I am. And I needed smaller class sizes, all of that. So I'd been going up to Taft since I was super young because my dad did go there um, and because he was super involved in the alumni committee. So I think like my first time on that campus, I was two. And I had had in like seventh or eighth grade, maybe even, it might've been sixth grade. I actually had my first admissions interview with this. Oh my God. Oh yeah. With this guy, Freddie Wandel, who had been at the school since my dad, like he had been a teacher when my dad was attending as a student, um, which was a theme that would recur quite often. Like, I had my dad's Latin teacher um, when I was oh there. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so I was actually, like, pretty familiar with the campus, like, all of that to say. Like, I had been there a lot. So I thought I was going to come in, and I thought it was going to be incredibly easy mm-hmm. just because all these adults there knew who I was in some regard. Um, and that's not what I found to be true. Um, so my my first day I got there, I arrived early along with my roommate, um, who was this other girl who was entering as a sophomore. And we were there for orientation. And the first thing that happened essentially was that we had a group orientation as sophomores, all new sophomores. But then I went to another one, um, which was actually an orientation for students of color. And that was very, very new to me. Um, I grew up in a town that was like incredibly diverse and Mm -hmm. it was not a place where I had ever had need for and thus had never heard of affinity spaces like at all. Um, And so to be in a grouping of just kids of color, and when I say kids of color, it it was actually just uh, Latinx and black kids pretty much. Okay. Um, So it was like that grouping was not a grouping that I had ever really been in before. And it was also um, the first time that I had really experienced, like, the full diaspora of what Mm -hmm. um, Latinx and Black kids could be. Because, as I talk a little bit about in the book, and I'll lay it out very quickly here, my public high school, we were leveled. Um, Mm -hmm. So we were level four, three, two, one. Level four were the smart kid classes. Um, And then it went down from there. And, you know, as you can expect, that got real segregated real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, The ACLU actually sued my school district for that. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or I should say they investigated the school district um, for segregation, essentially. And because we were segregated like that, um, I had just never been in a majority Black or Latinx space because of Mm -hmm. that. Um, So it was really new for me. And I also, like, came from a family that, like, Love my parents, but it was very um, respectability politics-based. Mm-hmm. And so to be placed in this space uh, was very new and, like, very stressful for me. Because I didn't feel like I knew how to act or relate with my Black and Latinx peers. Wow. Yeah. You know, I have to say, for anyone who is listening and doesn't know much about Taft School— Let me just say that when I was a freshman at the University of Vermont, there was a boy on my freshman 
uh, on the floor of my freshman dorm who had a Taft school sticker. And the joke <laughs> was that he got kicked out, that no kids from Taft end up at UVM, but that he had gotten kicked out. So anyway, just to put into perspective yep. uh, how uh, not just prestigious, but rigorous the Taft school is. Um, okay, so Aaron and I on Hysteria, we always joke about being political witches. But you wrote about your real witchcraft phase at school. Um, <laughs> can you explain a little bit about how you ended up with a single room uh, your mid-year? Yes. Yeah. So um, I always like to say that for adolescent girls, I feel like witchcraft, a witchcraft phase is something that like a lot of adolescent girls go through because it gives you the illusion of control. Uh, mm -hmm. where there is no real control. Um, and it allows you to think that you can, like, meld situations that aren't necessarily going your way. And so I think that's where that origin started. I took <laughs> it um, to another extreme where this roommate that I had, like I said, we were both new sophomores. We were both new mids. Um, and I genuinely thought that my – this was my first roommate ever. It was the first time I had shared a room with anyone I genuinely thought that we were going to be, like, the best of friends. I thought it was going to be a Harry Potter situation where you meet this person your first time and it's like, this is now a lifelong friendship that will continue with you forever. Mm -hmm. That was not the case. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this girl, uh, I cannot say who she is, but what mm -hmm. I can say is that if you have seen the show The Gilded Age on HBO, she's from one of those families. Like, got it. Literally. Okay. Yes. That is vivid. Yeah. Um, like, literally one of the families that founded America. Um, and so we had very, very little in common. And basically what happened was our schedules never really aligned. Um, I woke up really early for figure skating. Sometimes I woke up really early to do my hair. And it was that particular one that really, like, set her off. <laughs> and there was a moment one day where she said, just because you're black, it doesn't mean you have to get early, get up early to do your hair. And I said the white girl said, said the, white, the white girl said the white girl. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I should have mentioned that. Just need to make sure. Just yes. need to make sure. Should have mentioned this girl from a scion American family. Yes. <laughs> very white. Um, so and this happened about like November, our sophomore year. And because, again, I had not had a lot of experience um, with dealing like really just like dealing with race at all. It took my friends to tell me that that comment and like a few other comments that she had made. My friends were like, no. That's racism. Like, she is being racist. And once I sort of understood that and internalized it, I was like, okay, well, I know racism is bad. I know that, like, when someone does something racist, that deserves a large response. Um, my large response happened to be we waited for her to go to field, uh, field hockey practice one day. And we, uh, in our dorm room, my friends and I drew a giant pentacle on the rug <laughs> in chalk. And um, we then, we put, like, little tea lights at all the points of the stars. And we also then <laughs> drew runes all over our walls. Uh, and then when she got back from field hockey practice, we did make sure that we were sitting on the ground, cross-legged, chanting in tongues. Um, <laughs> she did not take that very well. <laughs> uh, yes. I'd imagine not. No, she didn't take that very well at all. And she uh, left the school a few weeks later. And the school never wow. gave Wow. You oh, didn't yeah. just drive her out of yeah. the room. You drove her out of the school. I think that there were some other issues that she was going through yeah. that, like, made her leave entirely. And let me tell you, again, I cannot tell you what who this woman is. I'll tell you off, okay. Mike. She's okay. doing fine. Um, that, okay. <laughs> She's doing with, fine. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, no, she left the school uh, a few weeks later, and the school just simply never gave me another roommate. Blessed be. Yeah. That is, what a gift. <laughs> what a gift. True, yeah. Never had another roommate. And when I tried to have a roommate, I tried to have my best friend room with me. Uh, yeah. I think it was like our senior year. And my mom at that point then called the school and was like, I don't want them living together. Definitely so not. never had one. <laughs> this, okay. So throughout the book, uh, you introduced a couple terms that I had never heard and mm. people should know them. Um, can you explain the term you use, black effort? Yeah, absolutely. This is, I don't know if I created this term or if I just said, I don't know. Uh, to me, you did. Great. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, black effort like was specifically something that, and I didn't know to identify it like this, um, like in high school or in college or really even until like a few years, like after I had graduated. Um, there is a situation that I write about in the book where a like fairly racist article was published in our school mm-hmm. paper. And it's the school paper. So there are adult supervisors, there are faculty advisors, all of that stuff. So ostensibly, this article went through several pairs of adult eyes before it reached the printing stage. And it was pre- it was deeply offensive to um, myself and then our Black and Latinx classmates. And there was an, sort of like an emergency meeting of our mm-hmm. Black and Latinx student union group um, the night the article came out. And we sat in that room, and I still have the minutes, actually, from that meeting. So when I write about it in the book, every single thing that is said uh, Mm -hmm. in that meeting actually was said. And what really struck me when I was reading back over the discussion that we had was, A, there was no adult in the room with us. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I I was a senior at that time, and I think I was the oldest person in the room. Um, And we sat there and we were trying to figure out how to respond and combat this article that had been published. And it was on us to do that. And it Mm -hmm. was on us to figure out what the response would be, to to figure out how we were going to teach our white classmates that this shouldn't happen, to also figure out how to teach possibly like the adults at the school that this shouldn't be happening, that this shouldn't happen. And it's something that has come up for me, um, as I say, engaged as an alumni as Mm -hmm. well. Every time an incident happens at the school, we get an email. We'll get like a mass email or something. Um, And then if we decide that we want to go further, it's sort of on us, the Black and Latinx students. And there are now, like, there are far more white allies now than there were prior. But it's us sitting around on, like, say, a Sunday when I'm intending to do something else. Like, I remember um, a kid was called the N-word or, like, the N-word mm-hmm. was written on a whiteboard or something. And I was sitting at a cafe on a Sunday working on something else. And I got this email and I got that there was, like, a petition happening and there was some work being done on new language for the student handbook. Like, all sorts of things. And they were like, can, like, people should read this. People should add things. People should work on this. And it's like, we are doing this free labor on behalf of the school so that our Black and Latinx peers who are currently there and are currently still students can have a better time and have a better experience than we did. But it's mm-hmm. us, the alumni, doing this work initially, trying to push the school forward, not the school taking the initiative to do that. And so that's what I mean by Black effort. Like, we just have to continually put in the work to try to right. make it a better experience. And to put a fine point on it, this uh 
wretched woman in your class <laughs> wrote wrote an op-ed, I guess it would be. I, yeah, an um, op-ed. <laughs> an op-ed, saying, which got published and, and like you said, passed through several, several la- uh, layers of advisors that said it was the fault of the affinity groups at the school, the brown and black students who were creating a sort of segregated environment. Exactly. Taft. Yeah. And that, I mean, when I read that, Kendra, just got to say, I was aghast. Also, for everyone listening, I just want to make the point. When this was happening, Barack Obama was president. Well, it was it was right before. Right before. It was, right before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This so was, he hadn't solved race. We hadn't solved racism yet by electing a black president. No, but we had. <laughs> I want to say he had already spoken at, in fact, yes, he had already spoken at the Definitely. DNC. And that was like a big deal on campus. I still have like my live journal entries really? from the night that that happened. That was, yeah, that was a big deal. Um, but um, yeah, no. So he had spoken at the DNC um, and Bush was still president, which was its whole okay, he was. own thing. I wasn't, I was trying to align the years and I was like, wait, like so many people in this country think, well, Barack Obama was president. We don't have racism anymore. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah, we, we do. We do actually still. Have I mean, racism. no, we have like plenty of that. Like, I know. Even that's like that sentiment, like Barack Obama aside, there was plenty of that sentiment on on campus, and that mm-hmm. sentiment is what really like triggered this article. Which the headline of the article was uh, "Does Taft take advantage of our diversity?" Um, and yeah, it was it was truly why. Yes, like you said, it, wow, it, it accused us. That's a journey. That whole process. What a journey. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, yeah, it just basically accused of, us of because we like to sit together in the cafeteria because we had affinity groups, we were the ones separating ourselves from the majority of the school. Mm. Mm. Okay. So one something I think I, in general, I think is an interesting topic. You make the point in the book that when you went to Taft, it was before Twitter, it was before Facebook, before any of that existed. Do you think Twitter or Facebook would have helped with building community at Taft? Um, I think... For, yes, in terms mm-hmm. of making sure that Black and Latinx students were connected with other Black and Latinx students at other sister schools, right. I think it absolutely made a difference. Um, I came to that point specifically because when I was writing the book um, when, pre-June of 2020, I was really adamant when I talked to people, I would always say, this is not a universal story that I'm writing. This is just mm-hmm. my story. This is only right. my experience. Then June of 2020 happened. And all of these accounts, um, you can still find some of them on Instagram. It, basically, they are called Black at, and then you type in the name yes. of an independent school. And so those accounts started popping up after um, George Floyd, essentially, and really started showing me how, like, deeply systematic of a problem this was. And it wasn't mm-hmm. that I didn't know that because I worked in independent schools at the time. Um, right. I worked at a progressive school in New York at um, before moving out to LA. And so I, it wasn't that I didn't know this was happening, but the specificity in the stories was yeah. just very, very, um, it was very compelling to me just because mm-hmm. the things that had happened to me in 2003 through 2006 were still happening to kids in 2018. Like I couldn't, I didn't understand how nothing had progressed. Um, right. and And so... Yeah, that's why I I think that, like, social media in that regard was incredibly Mm -hmm. useful because it really, like, allowed 
these kids to have some sort of like bond and to know that like it's not just me. This is truly across the country. So one of the characters in your book, Yara, your friend, you talk about her. There's one passage that when I was reading it, again, I've told, I, if I didn't say it on air, I, had, I have two copies of your book. And I had highlighted it in the first one. On page 229, you say, quote, by adding queerness on top of already being black and female on financial aid at a boarding school was to begin treading water with spent limbs. What do white people who want to be allies need to know about what it means to have spent limbs? It means that you're coming into a situation where you are already on the outside, just by like face value. If you look at mm-hmm. what you would consider the average TAF student, and then you look at myself and or like my group of friends, already there was a huge difference. And then, mm-hmm. and this is not to say that there weren't white kids or are not currently white kids at TAF sure. who are on financial aid, have different backgrounds, all of that stuff. But there is an assumption placed, or was at the time, placed on Black and Latinx kids that we did have all of those other things weighing us, or supposedly Mm -hmm. like weighing us down, that we were on financial aid, all of that stuff. It was, I was always assumed, despite being a legacy, despite being someone whose parent had been a trustee, it was always assumed that I came from prep for prep. Nothing wrong with Mm -hmm. that, but it wasn't my truth. Um, And so to have spent limbs means that in addition to navigating this new world, you're doing it with, like, other things that are weighing you down Mm -hmm. that might prevent you from accessing some of the heights that your white peers can. And it makes it ten times harder. Um, When you can't say, you know— Go, uh, one of our, a lot of our spring teams, for instance, spring sports teams, you're required to play a sport every semester or do a art, whatever. Spring teams often would go down to somewhere in Florida, um, usually like Miami or something. So if you couldn't afford that, you, sure, maybe the school, someone at the school would pay for that for you, but you have to go through the process of like, frankly, like humbling yourself because it's like hard Mm -hmm. at 16 to go ask for help in that way. Totally. You have to go talk to someone, start the process of maybe getting something paid for and just like Mm -hmm. go through all those motions that other kids don't have to. And that's the kind of thing where it's like you get so much more exhausted, so much faster having to go through all these extra steps to navigate what seems like it should be just normal for other kids. Yeah. Okay, so I've written some books. I've written some books. (laughs) When you write a book, you click send on your final round of edits. You, maybe you celebrate, maybe you get the shits. I don't know, because it's very (laughs) nerve wracking. And so here's my question. I had a, when I wrote my book, I had a series of index cards, right? I wrote every story on an index card and tried to figure out if it fit. Mm -hmm. And at the end, I was like, oh, did I, should I have put this one in? What should I have done? Did you have any stories that you would want to share that did not make the cut, but that you look back on? You're like, oh, that was pretty good. I'm trying to think about like one, one like thing that we cut out that I think it wasn't going to be necessary, but it was just like a fun thing was the amount that I used to, like I mentioned, I had a lot of online friends. Um, right. I I was very active online. A lot of them were older. Only one of them was male. 
Um, oh. and <laughs> that you know of. That yes, that I know of. <laughs> but um, the one who was who was male, we're actually still deeply close to this day. Um, like wow, I was at okay. yeah, I was at his wedding um a few years ago. Um, and there was a story that I had written out um about how we used to. Basically, they would take us, like, to these field trips in New York City occasionally. And we, I, instead of going on the assigned field trip, this one specifically was, remember when those orange gates were up in Central Park? And it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they took us down to see the gates. I don't remember what the purpose was, um, like, what we were supposed to do with it. But that was what we were, where we were supposed to be. Instead of that being there, me and my friends, um, we went actually down to NYU, and we went and hung out with this guy who I knew, again, from X-Men role-playing. And we just hung hung out um, down by NYU for the whole afternoon. And there were a bunch of of trips like that that I wanted to get in there, but, like, ultimately Uh didn't serve the story. But what I felt like it did was it really did show, like, that... This is a, like, boarding school is a very rarefied experience. It's a very independent experience. And yes, sure, if you grow up in New York City, you're probably just, like, wandering around by yourself all the time. Totally get that. But for us, that was, like, very cool and very new. And, like, going to meet all these older people or, um, God, I have a thing. I have not, never talked about this on air, but. What? So I, (laughs) um, one thing, when they drop you off in New York and you're by yourself Mm -hmm. and you're. 15, 16, and it's 2003 to 2006, the coolest thing that you think that you can do is to have a British accent. Um, So I used to, like, fake a British accent when I was, like, going into different stores. And there is one store in New York City that, to the point when I left, because I didn't understand how jobs worked, and I was like, no one works a retail job for a long time because that's not a real job. Um, So... (laughs) I was then shocked when every single time I went back to this store from 2003 until I left in 2017, that man was still there. And so there yep. is a store in New York City where I was just British for <laughs> like 15 years. I mean, you must have been pretty good at it. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so last question. Yes. Um, I When I wrote my books, I definitely, after the first book, looked myself in the mirror and definitely had a very different understanding of myself Mm. through the process because it's kind of like a colonoscopy. Like you can't hide from yourself. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's happening. Yep. So what did you learn about yourself while writing this book that you wish you'd known earlier? Um, I learned that like, so I, because I came up in the culture of like online writing Mm -hmm. and I came up during a period where I don't know if you remember when, um, Women writing essays about their trauma was, like, yes. really, it was really yep. hot. Um, and so at the time, I feel like I was doing a lot of writing that was about instant reflection. It was mm-hmm. about, like, this thing happened to me, and now I must make a personal essay out of it. Um, and what I learned from writing admissions was initially I thought it was going to be both a story about my time at boarding school, but also a lot about what I was doing at the time, which was working Mm -hmm. in independent school admissions. And every time I sat down to write about that part, like sort of the current present part of my life, I was like, I actually can't do this yet. I'm still too in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think was just like very important for me to learn. And like 
while I don't presume to tell any other potential memoirist uh, what to Mm -hmm. do, I actually do think that, like, separation from the thing that you are writing about is so deeply important um, and something that a lot of young writers aren't necessarily encouraged to take, especially during that period, like, that I was talking about, like, sort of that, like, 2011 to 2016-ish period. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, some space is really good. And if you're 25, 26, 27, it might not be time to write a memoir. Like yeah, that, like, you might that, still have, you might have a little a little more living to do. Just just a touch, and it's not right. because like you might not be a good writer. It's just like you really right. do need the space and time to reflect and learn about those things that you're writing about, and just gain a little bit of perspective. And that was incredibly helpful for me, and was also just incredibly helpful when like I think one of the biggest like sort of they tell you not to read Goodreads, whatever. Of course, yeah, we all read I Goodreads. know, of course. Um, but like the biggest sort of criticism that I see there of the book is they're like well, I want to know more about, like, what happened when she was working in admissions and, like, what it was like to work at schools. And I was like, okay, well, I need another, like, five, ten years on that. Yeah. And it just allowed me to not take that in at all. (laughs) Kendra James, thank you for coming on Hysteria. Everybody, get a copy of Admissions, a memoir of surviving boarding school. You will not regret it. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, and when we come back... Aaron's back, and we get into Sandy Petty. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. And welcome back. You are listening to Hysteria, the podcast that, along with Taylor Swift, helped put Travis Kelsey on the map. (laughs) Uh, More about that in a few seconds. But first, some announcements for the class. Yesterday, we had the pleasure of experiencing the chaos of the second Republican debates with our crooked fans. Yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Republican debate. Yay. It's about it's like watching 
the preseason of a sport that I hate. Uh, and today's What a Day episode, I joined hosts Priyanka and Juanita, along with Brian Boitler, on their special episode to chat about the GOP aftermath. Want to hear more about all the daily headlines? New episodes of What a Day drop Monday through Friday, wherever you pod. Could civil rights be in danger because of a case about hotel websites? This is the Supreme Court we're talking about, so you bet. The court's almost back in session in October, and when the justices get messier than anything Andy Cohen has to contend with, strict scrutiny is just the pod you need to make this term a little less scary. Each week, host Melissa Murray, Leah Lippman, and Kate Shaw unpack what's on the docket for this term and help you keep up with the slew of legal news headed our way. Make sure you subscribe to Strict Scrutiny to hear last year's SCOTUS decisions and be the first to hear about the new term drama each week, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Alyssa, just me and you for Sandy Petty. Uh, I want to talk about something that is just like both keeping me sane, um, but it is very petty this week. Um, and that is... There has been a mass incident of female solidarity this week, and that is the commitment to the bit that we are telling straight men that we believe <laughs> that Taylor Swift put rumored beau and all-time great NFL tight end Travis Kelsey on the map. Uh, there are videos of women talking about this on TikTok. There are so many. If you just put Travis Kelsey on the map into your TikTok search bar, you're going to find so many videos of women telling a straight man in their life that Taylor Swift put Travis Kelsey on the map and just watching the men react with absolute horror. horror. <laughs> they are they are aghast. They are aghast. Travis Kelsey was already on the map. Oh, he was famous. He's it's like giant okay, record okay. scratch. Uh, yeah, he's he's one of the best NFL tight ends of all times. Time, okay, okay. Uh, he's a two-time Super Bowl champion, eight-time <laughs> Pro Bowler. Excuse me, he was already on the map. It's so <laughs> so funny, so funny. And I, you know, I know it won't work for my husband because he has personally watched football games with me over the course of several years. So he would know. He would just be like, what is, you are kidding. Like, we, you like Travis Kelsey. Like, you've talked about how much you like watching him play. So anyway, uh, it's a really, really funny bit. If you want to trigger uh, a straight man in your life, um, it's great. It, it works on a lot of levels because one, it kind of exposes how um, you can act really stupid or like, or, or say something really outrageous and men will believe that you are, <laughs> that you are yeah. stupid. Like the, there is almost no limit to how um, stupid men will believe that women are. And it's very funny to watch them really be trolled to the limits of this. I couldn't yeah, get enough. Great. You you had posted. Th I just I just I didn't even need to look at TikTok anymore. I was just looking at your Instagram story, and I was like, another one, another one. And the way that the men look up from behind their computers. What? What did you just say? He what? was famous before, and it is like the greatest prank of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I no notes. It's it's a perfect troll, and I truly love it. Um. Alyssa, you've got you've you've got something 
I, let's both do multiple ones. I think we've both got Sani okay. Petty stuff going on, right? I uh, This is a Sani and a Petty, and it, it, it involves some dramatic reading, okay? From today's New York Daily News. Donald Trump found liable for wide-scale fraud ahead of trial in New York Attorney General's $250 million lawsuit. Now, Aaron, when I was driving in the car last night, hearing this breaking news, I was like, is it possible that Donald Trump is going to finally be held accountable for something? But Aaron, it got better by the minute. Eldest son, youngest son, losing their business licenses. Aaron, if this goes through, Trump Inc. will cease to exist in New York State. Cease (laughs) to exist in New York State. And this is my, this is my favorite, I'm just going to read a little blurb from the New York Daily News. This is about the judge. In an unexpected portion of his decision, the judge essentially stripped Trump of the ability to run his business in New York by canceling his certificates and any controlled by his adult sons, Eric and Don Jr., and Trump org execs, Alan Weisselberg and Jeffrey McConery. The judge gave them 10 days to find receivers to oversee the LLC's dissolution. Thank you so much. Thank you so oh, much. Wow. Now, the one, the part of this that makes me feel petty is how the fuck did Ivanka get out of this? Like, I tried to understand she somehow was able legally to get herself separated from all of this, which is a bummer. But I'll take two for three. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that is confusing because I think she was pretty uh, involved in a lot of the— I mean, I don't know if this— it didn't Like, Trump Soho, for example— uh, they almost got in big trouble for doing a bunch of lies around Trump lies. Soho, especially when yeah. they're trying to sell condos early. And Ivanka was like heavily involved in doing the lying. Um, yeah, I wonder if she's like kind of secretly turned state. I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe she just rolling in all that Saudi money she and Jared got post administration. I mean, Ivanka is a Scorpio, though. So she could be doing some shady revenge stuff. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. All I'm saying is based entirely on vibes. When uh, when when Donald Trump's birthday this year, Ivanka posted something on Instagram. It was like, I hope you have the year you deserve. Wink. Why not just say happy birthday? (laughs) Say happy birthday. It's true. That's very true. Remember, and she didn't post right away either. No, I hope you have the year you deserve. She's also publicly separated herself from his political activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. In, in my in my fanfic of betrayal within the Trump family, this is her um, doing some betrayals. Complete mm. vibey fanfic. Probably not real. Fun to imagine. No, but at um, least we can at least we can get the sense that she watched Succession and is. Taking some lessons from Shiv. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I also think that she's always kind of wanted to be a princess. She wanted to be like a Kennedy or a, a oh, Meghan yeah. Markle or whatever. And and she's seen kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that she maybe feels like she can come out of this still viewed as like some kind of American, you know, tacky Onassis or whatever. Um, <laughs> no, actually, that you know good. what? I think that that is Ron DeSantis' wife is tacky I think. 
Anyway, um, okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good uh, Sandy Petty. Here's something that is making me feel sane. It's very, um, it's very exciting. So a bunch of young people from Portugal, six young people from Portugal between the ages of 11 and 24, are taking a case to the European Court of Human Rights that is an unprecedented lawsuit alleging that countries that are responsible for pollution owe young people basically restitution. Um, They argue they're on the front lines of climate change, according to CNN, and ask the court to force the countries to rapidly accelerate climate action. If they win, if they win, it could force countries to scale up um, climate change ambitions. So like reducing, um, reducing emissions, et cetera. It would force them to do that more quickly than they had talked about doing before. Um, it would also bolster other lawsuits around the world that are meant to actually take countries and governments to task for causing uh, pollution. It's uh, high stakes, high stakes, but really exciting. These are like kids. Here for I it. I consider you a kid. Yes. In, it, yeah. I consider you a kid until your frontal lobe has closed, which is like between ages 25 and 27. Um, mm. And these are like kids and yeah, I hope they win. I hope they win. I hope that these countries that are more responsible for causing disastrous climate change are forced to cough up and change their ways because that would be super exciting. Um, yes, Do you have anything else, Sanity Corner, Petty? No, it's good. I feel cleansed. You feel cleansed. Uh, I feel cleansed. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this week's show. Uh, Tram Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Kendra James for joining Alyssa for the interview. And listeners, thank you. We love you very much. Uh, we have a couple listener shout outs. Alyssa, do you want to read one of them? Okay. Aaron, from... Gwen. I've listened to Hysteria every week for a few years now. As a Gen Z, I feel like Alyssa and Aaron are my cool older sister whose life advice I want to take. Aaron. Oh. I love that for us. That's great. Thank you, Gwen. That's really nice. You know, some sometimes I feel like there's this one episode of The Simpsons where Bart joins like this Boy Scouts type organization and he gets a book about how not to use knives called Donnie Don't. And it says, like, don't do what Donnie don't does. And it shows, like, this kid playing with an I feel like the Don- a Donna don't sometimes. Um, yeah. Don't do what Donna don't did. Um, <laughs> but at least I'm open about what Donna don't did. Okay. Uh, we also got an email from a listener named Cassie. And Cassie writes, hello, Hysteria team. I wanted to write to express my gratitude to Aaron and podcast guests with children for their honesty and vulnerability discussing the challenges of motherhood and parenting. I have a six-year-old daughter whom I love dearly, but the role of mother has brought a set of frustrations and anxieties. I think nobody's truly prepared for when they have a child. Your frankness in describing your own experiences makes me feel not so alone in my struggles with motherhood. I think all parents would benefit from being more open and vulnerable with each other about all of the ups and downs and that sometimes it just really sucks. Yeah, that's true, Cassie. It does sometimes suck. And, uh, it uh, and sometimes it's the best thing ever, and then sometimes it's just like the worst thing other, ever. Um, my daughter has gotten into kicking lately. Oh, she loves that's fun. She just indiscriminately kicking when she's mad, like just out of frustration, her legs just kick. Oh. And uh, I gotten ki- gotten kicked in the stomach many times, but it's really hard to pick somebody up who is just like 
kicking. Kicking. You know? Because that's <laughs> yeah. just Yeah. Listeners, we love hearing from you. If you want to get in touch, hysteria at crooked.com. You can also leave us a review. It helps people find the podcast. And you know, if you have a friend you think would like the show, share it with them and uh, indoctrinate them into our cult because that's what this is, a nascent cult. All right. That's all the time we got. There'll be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our senior producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. And Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. Fiona Pestana is our associate producer. The show is engineered and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our video producers are Rachel Gajewski and Megan Patzel. And thank you to Julia Beach, Ewa Okulate, Amelia Montooth, Adia Hill, and David Tolls for production support every week. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.